In the early days of, well, humanity, just seven generations out from Adam, there lived a man who stood out from the crowd. He was the father of the oldest man, according to the Bible, to have ever lived, and the great-grandfather to Noah. And though he is only briefly mentioned in Genesis, his name has had more influence on Christianity than arguably any other of the patriarchs to ever walk the earth. It is speculated that he might have even been the one to reveal God's divine law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Oh, and he is one of only two people that the Bible claims never died a natural death. Though our canonized texts only mention him four times, Enoch the Patriarch has made a lasting impression on our world, more so than many of us even begin to know. Though he was said to be taken to heaven, he wasn't just taken away by God to never be heard from again. No, he was taken to have divinity itself revealed. And lucky for us, he supposedly wrote it all down. The Book of Enoch isn't considered canon in most churches, but the Patriarch's words echo throughout our air quotes here, official Bible pages like TNT in the Grand Canyon. From Jude to Jesus, the Book of Enoch has been referenced seemingly more often than not, and has been taken quite seriously up until its disappearance during the canonization process 1800 years or so ago. Lucky for us, the Book of Enoch found its way back to the surface and into the hands of curious minds to be pondered over once more. So let's take a look behind its dusty cover to see what secrets our ancient interstellar traveler trudged up as he was lifted from the earth and tossed through the heavens. And while I know this might sound a bit outlandish, you might be more than a bit surprised at just how familiar this story feels once we start unpacking some of what this mystery contains. This is Itinerant. Biblical History Beyond the Bible Presented by The Reckless Pursuit And I'm Cody Johnston Before we begin tearing apart all the great mysteries the Book of Enoch contains, let's take just a moment to get ourselves up to speed on its history so we can better understand just how far this text has come. In 1773, James Bruce, a famous Scottish traveler, returned to Europe after spending the previous six years in the Ethiopian Empire. While he was there in Ethiopia, he had embarked on a mission to rediscover an ancient text that was said to be a precursor to much of what the Bible herself contained. Preserved by the Ethiopian Orthodox Church as a canonical piece of scripture, he was fortunate enough to obtain three copies of this mysterious text to bring back with him from his travels. These texts sat idly by until Richard Lawrence, the Archbishop of Ireland, came across one of the manuscripts and translated it into English in 1821. Though this translation was deemed unreliable due to its single copy basis, this was still the first time this book had been translated from its original language of Gs, an ancient Ethiopian Semitic language. From 1851 to the mid-1950s, more manuscripts were discovered 
compiled and used to refine the accuracy of the English translation and now we have what is believed to be a complete work at our disposal. Being that the Book of Enoch is not considered canon in our modern biblical translations, it has received a bit of a bad rap over the years. Many deem it as a pseudepigraphal writing, that is, a book penned by an author that came much later but stole a name from history to give themselves a bit more credibility. And there's probably some truth to this. Many of our Old Testament books have multiple writers as well. For example, it's highly unlikely Moses wrote all of the Exodus himself. And let's not even get into the theory that Paul did not in fact write all of the Pauline epistles like they so claim. I'll leave that one for you to go and research on your own time. But whether it was penned by the seventh patriarch himself or was adapted from stories passed down through the ages, it's honestly not much of a concern to where we're headed today because the influence is still there all throughout our Bible, if even just below the surface. Due to its many common themes with the New Testament, the Book of Enoch has long been a topic of debate. Some saw it as a divine revelation, proclaiming the good news that was to come, while others saw it as a post-Christ work of folklore written to add some kind of validity to the Christian revolution. But in 1976, a breakthrough happened that put to rest many of these claims. Upon the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, researchers found fragments of documents that seemed a bit too familiar. When they deciphered what they said, they soon realized they were looking at an ancient fragment of a copy of the Book of Enoch. Using the paleographic dating technique where experts compile a document's writing style based on known works throughout history, Researchers were able to trace the origin of these documents back to around 200 BCE. This is, of course, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, and offered a whole new perspective on ancient Jewish literature as well as New Testament understandings. So here we have a document passed down through the ages and tightly woven in with our entire way of believing, yet it is so keenly rejected from our faith. But who are we to not at least attempt to explore its depths? So let's get digging in search of just how much of an influence it's actually had. The Book of Enoch is divided into five sections. Let's go over each of these in order, starting with the first, the Book of the Watchers. The Book of the Watchers goes into detail, describing how Enoch, a just and righteous man, was given a vision to show him the hierarchy of the heavens. It speaks of 199 fallen angels who came to the earth to take human wives, as also referenced in the Book of Genesis. It was by these angels that sin was introduced to the earth. This is also where we get the idea that angels fell from heaven to earth and became demons or principalities or something, depending on who you ask. It goes on to state how each of these angels taught mankind how to fashion weapons, make liquor, and to perform the secret magic known only to the heavens. This is also where God tells the angel Uriel to go and warn Noah of the flood that is to come, the same flood that was revealed to his great-grandfather Enoch in his vision. 
We'll get to that in just a bit. It then goes on to describe how all of the rebellious angels, along with their leader, Azazel, would be bound and cast into a pit of darkness. Azazel is blamed for the sins of mankind and is cursed to bear the weight of those sins for all eternity. We actually see this referenced in Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement, also known as Yom Kippur, where two goats are slaughtered, one for the Lord and the other for, you guessed it, Azazel. The next section you come to in the Book of Enoch is known as the Book of Parables. This section is an expansion on the first, but ventures further past how things got to where they are and dives into the end-time events similar to the book of Revelation. There's no doubt that much of what John wrote about was inspired by this section of texts. As a matter of fact, there are almost word-for-word -word quotes found in both the book of John and Revelation that were lifted from these chapters in Enoch. This is also the same section that we first see an idea of a coming savior, specifically the familiar term son of man. This is the very reason that the book of Enoch has been tossed out of most Jewish circles. And while you would think that a text mentioning the coming savior would have the backing of pretty much every Christian that walks the earth, this is also the section that might have got it thrown out from there too. See, the book of parables speaks of 70 generations that will pass before the appearance of the son of man. And it just so happens that in the book of Luke, if you count each name representing a generation from Enoch to Jesus, there is in fact 70 names listed. So it seems Enoch hit the nail square on the head, but then that would also mean that the entire events of Revelation would have had to have already happened, because both the book of Enoch and Jesus himself said, not an age will pass before I return. This would mean that the prophecies in Revelation would have already had to have happened, and this view is commonly known as preterism. Preterism commonly believes that the biblical prophecies were fulfilled with the fall of Emperor Nero at the end of the Christian persecution in 70 AD. And since many Christian doctrines reject preterism altogether, the Enochian texts never really stood a chance. There are three other sections of the book of Enoch that we're going to go over rather quickly. The astronomical book speaks of Enoch being taken to the heavens and shown how seasons, days, and months worked. This entire calendar was based on a solar rather than a lunar cycle and aligned up with the creation narrative in Genesis. The next section was the book of dream visions. The book of dream visions were a segment of, well, dreams and visions given to Enoch which portrayed the entire future of Israel up until the Maccabean Revolution in 167 BCE. The first section of this book described in detail the soon-to-come flood and the replanting of humanity. The second part is played out like a fable depicting future events as animals. It goes into great detail about the rise and fall of the Jewish temples, as well as the rise of the coming Messiah, represented by a sword-wielding sheep. No, seriously, couldn't make this stuff up. And finally, we come to the last section, known as the Epistle of Enoch. This section rehashes much of what the other four sections have already covered, with a rather humorous description of the birth of Noah and how his father panicked when he saw his son thinking his white hair and beautiful eyes 
cannot possibly be his offspring and that his wife must have had an affair with one of the Watchers previously mentioned. As a fellow white-haired man, I feel a bit attacked by his response, and yet simultaneously flattered. All in all, our Bible has literally hundreds of inspired passages, if not direct quotes, pulled from the Book of Enoch. From the language Jesus used regarding his divinity, to the tribulation to come in the Book of Revelation, there are more than enough influential ideas to go around. It's obvious to see how the Book of Enoch inspired many of our New Testament ideas, but it also caused a few splinter religions to form around it as well. Wherever there is an idea of divinity, people seem to find a way to obscure it. In this case, these beliefs were based on the idea of invoking the powers of the angels listed. It is said within its pages that these angels taught mankind how to use magic, reserved for only heavenly entities. And well, when presented with the opportunity for power, many of our finest buckle at the knees to have a taste. Naturally, some were drawn to this idea and created religious covens based off of these invocations. Religions like the Order of the Enochian Magic and the Hermetic Order of Soul were just a couple of the many groups that have used this text to try and gain godlike power for their own benefit. So that leaves us with one glaring question. With so much strange and yet inspired word, what are we to do with this book? If even Jesus quoted it from time to time, then surely we should give it at least some attention, right? I think the best answer to that is a double-edged sword. Like all scripture, both canon and not, it's vital we take a long, hard look at the contextual clues left behind. What's literal versus figurative? How are these themes used to portray specific ideas in this time? How do these words relate to other parts of the bigger picture? While Enoch is, by and large, a book that has deep roots in our faith, it's hard to say for sure what was written when, what has been added onto, and who authored what. This doesn't mean it's deemed useless, but more so that it should be pondered over a bit closer before it's taken to heart. But with all that being said, I find the most beauty from this book is in an understanding less about what it has to say and more about what it's caused others to believe. There's a level of joy that comes with understanding the thematic elements of New Testament teachings and where they drew their influence from. It makes things like this podcast extra special to me because all in all, writing this episode is similar to what the disciples did as they wrote down their accounts that became our Bible. It's an echo of something more ancient, a glimpse at something deeper, and a new way to reveal the same God that was then as he is now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Itinerant. If you enjoy the show, 
take a moment to subscribe, rate, and share it on with a friend. Word of mouth is a powerful thing and your recommendation is much appreciated. You can find out more about me and the show at itinerantpodcast.com. I co-host another podcast called The Reckless Pursuit. The Reckless Pursuit is a show dedicated to providing a safe place for Christians to ask unsafe questions. If you need a community of people where you can talk about your questions safely, we might just be your tribe. No matter your current church status or even religious views, all questions are welcome to help us grow and lay down our spiritual baggage. So if you feel like a spiritual nomad, we invite you to stop and rest. The journey is long, but the beauty lies within it. And until next time, keep searching. You never know what mysteries lie ahead.